The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So I was thinking I'm especially happy, grateful, really, to have this place to come to this morning, to have this space of quiet and community. Our world is in such turmoil right now. There's so much violence, so much chaos, so much confusion and suffering. And it feels like refuge (laughs) to be able to come here and sit in silence together, speak together, share a meal together, and have this sacred space. So what I'd like to share with you this morning are some thoughts about the importance of interfaith work. I've been involved in the interfaith community in San Jose for many years. And when I started several years ago, it was because I enjoyed it. I personally enjoyed it. I liked meeting leaders of other traditions, learning about other traditions, sharing about my Buddhist practice. And I really looked forward to our gatherings. It was just fun. It was nice fellowship. Now I see it as vital. (laughs) I see it as not just fun, but really necessary. There is so much misunderstanding in the world, so much confusion, so many myths about all traditions that I think our work together in an interfaith way is really important and really vital to creating or establishing a more peaceful world. So I have been involved for several years on interfaith panels through a group called Islamic Networks Group, which was originally started in the early 90s to counter the misconceptions about Islam. And for a while, it was Islamic Jewish um, panels. And then it spread, it opened, so now it's interfaith panels. There still are Islamic panels, but uh, I'm part of the Interfaith Speakers Bureau. And typically, there are four or five of us on a panel. We go to schools, mostly high school and college sometimes uh, middle school, service organizations, just about anybody that invites us. And we do a simple presentation. Each one of us, we call it, you know, Buddhism 101 or Hinduism 101. And um, usually there's a topic that we speak to, like shared values. And then we open it for questions. And, of course, that's where a lot of the rich dialogue is. 
And through these panels, I have come to understand the other four traditions um, much more than I ever did before. In fact, I was pretty ignorant. Um, I didn't know much of anything about any of the other traditions. And now I have many friends in all the other traditions. And consistently, the feedback we get is that what was most important and most noticeable was how the five of us sat together on this panel and obviously liked each other. Not just tolerated, you know, we weren't up there rolling our eyes at each other, but we honestly like each other. And that comes across, you know. You can tell that, you can see that. And that's what people are most impressed with. That the five of us from very different traditions, Christian, Buddhist, Jewish, um, Hindu, and Islam, can be together and obviously enjoy each other. And that's what it's about. Because a large part of of our world surviving, you know, we talk a lot about climate change and that's very important. We talk about sustainability and etc. But so much of it, as the Dalai Lama says, is just simply living together peacefully. And that's hard to do if we don't understand each other. So the most valuable part of interfaith work is to develop an understanding of each other. And it's more than tolerance. It's not just putting up with each other. It's actually honoring, respecting, accepting, understanding each other. We, we had a little discussion about this just after the last panel a couple of weeks ago where we were all acknowledging that there's a difference. It's not tolerance. It's actually appreciating each other and each other's traditions. And of course, there's much to appreciate in every tradition. And there's sometimes much to disagree with. So the appreciation, the understanding, doesn't come with forgetting what we disagree about. We don't talk about that on the panels, but it's very obvious as we're together that there are differences. And we're not wanting to uh, whitewash those, but to accept those differences as well and still appreciate what we do share. And this has been a wonderful experience for me. As I've done this work, it's very interesting. I have come to appreciate Buddhist practice even more and to not be attached to it. And that's a very wonderful feeling. And that's what we talk about, right? To, to follow the teachings without being attached to them. We know that in the end, for ultimate freedom, we have to let go of it all. 
we have to let go of all of the teachings, all of the ideas. The teachings are a means to an end. The teachings are a vehicle to get us to freedom. But in the end, to be free, we have to let go of them all. And that gives us great freedom now. I don't actually know another tradition that teaches that. And I see that as as a stumbling block sometimes for other traditions that hold so tightly to their beliefs and are not willing, sometimes even to question them, let alone let go of that. So that's one of the things I really value about Buddhist practice and that I like very much to share with other people. I also very much like the emphasis on seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are. Not as we wish they were, not as we'd like them to be, not as we think they should be, but the bare reality or the bare truth, how things actually are. And when we do that, we discover, don't we, how much interpretation we put on the simplest things. We see a simple thing and immediately we're interpreting that. We're um, attributing certain things to that scene or that being or whatever that may or may not be true. And so it can help us to see all the extra that we put on to just seeing the bare truth. It reminds me of the Buddha's teaching when he held up a rose, a simple flower. Just that. Just seeing the flower. No name, no uh, attributes, nothing else about it the simple flower. Can we practice seeing things in that way? And when we do, we see things much more clearly. And we see how much extra we add to things. I very much appreciate the the emphasis on personal responsibility. Because in Buddhist practice, we don't talk about God or an uh, an external being, the emphasis is on ourselves. It is up to us to follow the teachings. Nobody is there to rescue us (laughs) or make things better. Likewise, there's nobody to blame when things don't go the way we like. Um... We don't blame ourselves either, but we see our own responsibility. And this can be both a challenge and a freedom. When I was much younger, I probably wouldn't have liked it very well because I liked being told what the truth was, so then I knew what to do. And Buddhism would have really (laughs) challenged me. Now I greatly appreciate it. Yes, I can see 
things in a much broader way. I can appreciate paradox, and I can appreciate myth. <laughs> um, I can appreciate the, the discrepancies, the differences, and I don't have to follow just one belief or just black and white. I very much like <clears throat> the way we hold the precepts. Again, different from other traditions that see the precepts as commandments. And they are black and white and they must be followed and there's no debate and that's the way it is. Um, I saw a bumper sticker one time that says, they're commandments, not guidelines. <laughs> and I thought, a Buddhist bumper sticker would say, they're guidelines, not commandments. <laughs> Again, putting the responsibility on us. You know, and some might think that that's making them kind of loosey-goosey if they're guidelines, but not commandments, and I find it to be just the opposite. That it makes them richer, it makes them more real. It makes us ponder and consider and think about them rather than just rotely following do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. So again, I really respect that, um, that personal responsibility. Another thing I really respect is our emphasis on compassion. Now, we're not alone in that. Every tradition values compassion. They may speak about it a little differently. Sometimes it's the golden rule. Sometimes it's called love. Um, it's not always called compassion. But as you may know, Karen Armstrong, who is a, a religious scholar in England, discovered that compassion was the common denominator among all of the world's religion. And she, I believe she won a Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel Prize anyway, and used the money to uh, develop the uh, Compassion Proclamation, which you can Google online, see it, and sign it. So all traditions talk about compassion in some form or another. I think that um, compassion, per se, is more predominant in Buddhist practice than I've heard it in other practices. And I very much appreciate the respect that Buddhism has for other traditions. Again, perhaps more so than many of the other religions. Buddhism does not suggest that this is the only way, that we have the answer and that you must follow the Buddhist path. Buddhism says there are many paths. And in fact, the Dalai Lama says, practice Buddhism so that you can practice your own religion better. <laughs> um, some people have, have, have done that. Some people have practiced Buddhism and then gone back to their original religion. 
some people practice both. Sylvia Borstein at, at um, Spirit Rock, as you may know, uh, has been, you know, as a Buddhist teacher, has practiced many years. She was Jewish originally, and I don't know, 10 years or so ago, she went back to her Jewish roots. Now, she didn't leave Buddhism. She practices both very, very nicely. Many people do. Um, That's one of the things I've learned. There are a lot of similarities between Judaism and Buddhism, which I had no no idea. But this idea of challenging, of discovery, of investigation, it's very much in the Jewish traditions as well. I didn't know that. One of the women that does these panels with us likes to say, where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. (laughs) <laughs> it always gets laugh. <laughs> but it's a cute way of, of saying that, that there's very much this debate uh, tradition within Judaism. Um, and it's what the rabbinic, rabbinical tradition of debate that, um, that determines what a school of Judaism will follow, how they will see things. So I had hoped today to have with me an imam, uh, Imam Tahir Anwar, who I know from my work in San Jose, but he unfortunately wasn't available uh, this weekend. Hopefully another time we can set up a time uh, to have him here He will be speaking in San Jose on the first Wednesday of January. Of course, as you know, Muslims are on the hot seat these days. (laughs) You know, it seems that from time to time there's one group, whether it's religious or ethnic, racial, whatever, that is the out group. That is the scapegoat at that particular time. And right now it's Islam. It's Muslims. And so the faith community is very um, intent on supporting our Muslim friends, on challenging the myths that get tossed around about Islam out of ignorance, by and large, and educating as many people as we can about what we have learned to be the true teachings of Islam. Not that any of us that are not Muslim can speak for Islam, but at least we can speak up when something that we know is not true is said. And I have found myself doing this many, many times because like me until 20 years ago, most people didn't know anything about Islam. Or they knew, have learned, a lot of untruths, a lot of mistaken uh, assumptions and sometimes outright lies. So Islam is actually a religion of peace. And that's very hard for many people to understand. 
when there has been so much violence done in the name of Islam. But the Muslim people that I know will tell you, that's not the Islam I know. That's not the Islam I'm practicing. So people, extremists, um, you know, it seems now that a lot of the um, terrorists are young men with no future. Uh, they don't have jobs. They don't have possibilities. And when ISIS or Boko Haram or whatever uh, promises them, I understand ISIS pays $700 a month um, and promises them whatever they do, eternal life or something, it's very attractive. And so they're drawn to this extremism to give their life meaning, purpose, and actually to get some money. And they are not practicing the religion of Islam. They are following somebody who's whatever, power-hungry or territorial-hungry or whatever. And that's very hard for us in the West to get, to understand, to believe. Um, And it's probably even more than that. There's probably much more than that. The West is often vilified, and, and many young people, I think, find purpose in destroying the West and our ideology. So it's very complex. But it is not Islam. It is not what Muhammad taught. Just like, as Buddhists, we have to acknowledge, and maybe many of you know, there are Buddhist monks in Myanmar that are behaving atrociously. They are slaughtering their Muslim neighbors. They've lived together in peace for many years. And now there's this friction. And for me, it's very disconcerting. It's very embarrassing even to know that Buddhist monks are doing this. And they're saying things like, you know, the Muslims are going to take over. It's a Buddhist country. You know, so they're very concerned that the Muslims are going to take over and that the Muslim birth rate is much higher um, than the Buddhist one. And so they're just going to, they're going to become the dominant, uh, you know, whatever tradition or race or something. Um, it's my understanding that none of that is true. It's not true that the Muslim birth rate is higher. In fact, what I understand is that the Muslims are scared to death and they are fleeing. They are the Rohingya um, refugees because they're terrified by these Buddhists that are treating them so badly. Now, does that have anything to do with the Buddhist religion, the Buddhist teaching? No, no, not at all. These are probably not well-trained monks. They, are, they have their own purposes, you know, territory and, and power and 
etc. that they're concerned about. It has nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. The Buddha never taught violence in any way. In fact, he suggested that hatred never ends through hatred, but through non-hatred alone. So we don't consider that these monks represent us or mainstream Buddhism or the Buddhist teachings, not at all. It's the same with Islam, with the terrorists that say they're doing it in the name of Islam, but it's not Islam. So in October, I was fortunate to be able to go to the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. This was the largest gathering ever, uh, largest interfaith gathering ever, ever. almost 10,000 people. The last I got was 9,800 and some. The first parliament was held in 1893 in Chicago, and then there was not another one until 1993, also in Chicago. And then since then, there's been one every five or six years. Um, in Cape Town, in Barcelona, in Melbourne six years ago, and then this one in Salt Lake City. And there's talk about doing the next one in two years, probably in Europe. So again, the emphasis was on, of course, more than five religions. There was something like 80, I think, different religions represented, a hundred and some countries, many indigenous First Nation um, uh, communities, people represented. There were um, plenaries, there were small group presentations and discussions, there were practices. Uh, one, the first morning I was smudged as I uh, walked into the hall. Um, it was really wonderful. Of course, I went to many gatherings, but as you can imagine, a large part of it was just all of us being there together. So you walk down these long halls. This, the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City is just huge. Um, and you would pass, uh, you know, monks in robes and uh, Native Americans in full dress regalia, um, people of all colors and nationalities and practices. It was so rich. And part of the joy was just meeting each other. Uh, learning, yes, but more the connection, the people-to-people -people connection. You know, when you know somebody, when you know somebody personally, it's hard to carry on the misunderstandings. It's hard to fight with them. You can disagree, but when you really know them and you see them as human beings, it's very hard to set them up as an enemy. They're not an enemy. They're different. <laughs> and a big theme was to, to celebrate the diversity, 
to um, celebrate the richness of all of our different traditions without in any way letting go of our commitment to our own tradition. And, and that's really, I think, the beauty of it, that we can appreciate other traditions without in any way letting go of our own tradition. So I've said this before, but I just want to mention again that the most outstanding experience of the Parliament was what's called Langer. It was the free meal provided by the Sikh community every day. Every day. And it was a delicious vegan Indian meal that was graciously and gratefully served to all of us. It was my main meal of the day. Um, Everybody was welcome. I don't think all 10,000 people ate, but many thousand did. And we sat, we all sat on the floor, so we were all equal. And the servers came by with literally buckets <laughs> of rice and, and curry and veggies and salad and naan and drinks and Boy, if that was not community. As somebody said, all the other traditions are selling things. The six are feeding us. And that was, that was literally the truth. Yes. So there, there are many things I could share from the parliament, but there isn't time. <laughs> So I thought I would just read um, this one piece that is the conclusion. In conclusion, we appeal to all the inhabitants of this planet Earth. Earth cannot be changed for the better unless the consciousness of individuals is changed. We pledge to work for such transformation in individual and collective consciousness for the awakening of our spiritual powers through reflection, meditation, prayer, or positive thinking for a conversion of the heart. Together we can move mountains. Without a willingness to take risks and a readiness to sacrifice, there can be no fundamental change in our situation. Therefore, we commit ourselves to a common global ethic, to better mutual understanding, as well as to socially beneficial, peace-fostering, and earth-friendly ways of life. So... um, The Dalai Lama has been very instrumental in uh, interfaith work, multi-faith work, we might say. He wrote this book, Toward a True Kinship of Faiths, which is a wonderful uh, um, synopsis, 
summary of all, well, not all, of course, but many of the world's uh, great religions. And he suggests if the world's religions can't get along, how do we expect anybody else to get along? So he, as many faith leaders, feel that it's our responsibility as faith traditions to not just begin, but to carry on the dialogue, to carry on the work together. And this was the strongest um, sense that came out of the parliament. There were about five themes that were presented, the, the things that are before us in the world today, climate change, sustainability, equality, um, economic diversity, and, and uh, violence, non-violence. And the feeling was that, you know, these are huge problems. But as faith traditions, if we come together, if we work together, we can solve them. But we have to work together. Not one country, not one faith, not one group of people can solve any of these problems. They're worldwide. And they take all of us acting together. And what better way to get us all working together than through our faith traditions? So it very much, of course, starts locally. And, and that, again, was another theme. Okay, now, this has been wonderful. We've all enjoyed this. Now go home and go to work. It's not okay just to come to Salt Lake, have a good time, and then go home and, you know, go back but now go home and go to work. Take what you have learned and put it into practice in your own community. And I think, actually, in many ways, IMC is a very good example of that. There are many things that we put into practice in this community. So in this book, the Dalai Lama says, the challenge before us in this era of nuclear, um, nuclear weapons, international terrorism, financial uncertainty, and ecological crisis, the challenge is simply peaceful coexistence. So just one more thing. Um, I don't know if any of you were aware, on Christmas Eve, Thursday night, there was a multi-faith, interfaith program entitled May Peace Prevail on Earth that was presented on CBS at 11.30, 11.35. And it was, I'm not usually up that late, <laughs> but I stayed up. And it was filmed here in San Francisco. Uh, one of the, the Jane representative in San Jose actually had a speaking part. It was lovely because it had so many of the world's traditions together. And there was a horseshoe of candles 
that a representative from each tradition came and lit and said one, uh, I can't remember if it's just the word or the theme, but can you imagine what it was for Buddhism? I just told you. Compassion. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of fun as each one, you know, I was guessing in my mind what they were going to say. I was right many of the times. And yes, for Buddhism it was compassion. Um, again, it's just a reminder that how important it is that all of the world's traditions come together and work peacefully together. And someone quoted what I know Thich Nhat Hanh has said, and that is that we do not create peace. Peace is every step. We have to be peace. We don't go out there and make peace. (laughs) We are peace. And when we are peace, we do then actually create peace. So I think there's only about five minutes left. Um, I wonder if people have questions or comments. Um, one very divisive thing that you know some traditions do is their insistence that theirs is the only truth and the other ways are satanic. And I was wondering what to do in getting getting past that. And and maybe it's not traditions that do this, but there are certain individuals that are certainly hold this position. Just wondering how, how you address that theme. Um, I think, as I've been saying, in, in our interfaith work, I know there are some traditions that feel that way. In general, in the groups I've been in, um, they don't say that. <laughs> uh, Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I think, yeah, but inside you think yours is the only one. And I'm sure sometimes that's true, you know. But what we can do, the rest of us, is um, educate. And, you know, I like to say very loudly that Buddhism says we're not the only path. Now, somebody did challenge me once, a, um, um, an evangelical Christian. She said the Dalai Lama said that Buddhism was the path. Now, I know there's a misunderstanding somehow. I don't know exactly what he said, but I know he didn't say that. Dalai Lama would not say that. The Dalai Lama says there are many paths. <laughs> he may have said it's the most direct path to freedom or something like that, but not that it's the only path. Um, you know, we can just keep sharing from our perspective that there are many paths. And when we uh, respect and honor other people's traditions, I think that that helps to teach them they can do the same. But if somebody is really intent, or, you know, some people really believe that, um, that if you're not born again, whatever, you will go to hell. And, and so they may really be concerned for us. <laughs> they don't want us to go to hell. Well, you know, 
if that's how they believe and they want to hold to that, we don't have to believe it. We don't have to accept that. And we can be kind and compassionate in the face of whatever other people say or do. That, and maybe that's the challenge. <laughs> yes? I really appreciate your sharing all this. It's uh, very much something... Well, I don't think about interfaith so much, but one thing I do feel is strongly is, is that a lot of the prejudice towards um, Islam is compounded by knowing so little about that particular faith. Right. And I feel that myself. I feel like I only have the vaguest idea of what it says in the Quran or what the teachings are, or, you know. And um, I wonder if you have any suggestions about how to become just more informed, maybe not with, I can't commit to a deep study, but to mm-hmm. some, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I don't think a deep study is necessary. I can't say that I've done a deep study. Um, you know, the first thing I want to say is that I appreciate your honesty. I think that is really important for all of us to acknowledge how little we know so that we don't glom on to something. Oh, I know, you know, I know this, that, or the other. I was fortunate shortly, well, I mean, like months before 9-11, Channel 9 did a program called Mohammed. And that was the first I learned anything about Islam. And of course, because it was before 9-11, I didn't have any of the other prejudices or, you know, issues. Um, And they have run it from time to time. Now, I don't know if it's on their website or how you could access it, but it was, of course, very neutral. What? Netflix, that could be, that could be, yes. Um, that might be a good start because it's just presented as, as is. Um, often mosques in the area will have open houses. I have been to a community in, uh, in Milpitas where they have invited us during Ramadan to come for the, the meal at the end of the day. And that has been, that's been one way to learn. I was involved, we had a women's interfaith group for a number of years. And that was a great way to learn because we would meet at different, um, you know, mosques, temples, churches, whatever. And we would have a theme and then we would each speak to that. So I would learn from that. So I don't, other than the Quran, I don't know a good book. Um, yes, do you? I forget his name, but it's called An Introduction um, to Islam for Jews. And so even if you're not Jewish, it was really interesting. And there have been other, um, other books written um, um, in, Santa, in Silicon Valley a few years ago there were two books and of course I'm blanking on the names right now but written by Muslim women their experience and their understanding 
Yes. One of the... Um, uh, my struggles with it is the um, what appears to be the subjugation of women in Islam. And, I, you know, I don't know if the women feel subjugated, but it looks like it to me. Um, and I was thinking about this, like there's, you know, Buddhists wear robes, they shave their heads, women do. I don't know why it's different for me that the women cover their heads. So it, I was just thinking about that. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, but it, that's... Um, it's interesting I struggle that with. I didn't think to mention that. Um, one of the important things I have learned is that in the Quran, there's one section or one verse that says that people should dress modestly, men as well as women. Now, I haven't read the Quran, but this is what I've been told. And that different countries, different cultures... Different groups have interpreted that differently. So here in the West, women have a choice. Some cover their heads, some don't. I know both. I, I have a friend who um, covered her head, has for as long as I've known her, until I saw her a month ago and she didn't have a headscarf on. And I said, oh, you know what? She was experimenting with not wearing it. So... In some Muslim countries, like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, whatever, um, it's not the religion, it's the, the, it's cultural. Yes, yes, and like in Saudi Arabia, it's the, the monarchy, the, the ruling, you know, class that determines, um, that's an important distinction, that it's cultural, not religious. Most people don't know that. How would they? And it's not widely talked about. But it's my understanding that's how it is. It's the culture that determines it, not the religion that says you have to cover from head to toe. Yeah. So we are five minutes over. We probably should stop. I will be around if you have further questions or comments. I'd be happy to answer. Thank you all.